Morning, my name is uh, John Rock, one of the pastors here at Grace, and excited to be wrapping up for you our series uh, called Resolutions. Um, it's already been a full day, though, here, just hearing the Iraq team share what God is doing there, incredible stuff. And, and next week, we have a really big week planned. We're going to be unwrapping our new theme for this year, for 2016, so you don't want to miss next week. Don't be late. Be here for 2016's uh, kickoff uh, of our theme here at Grace. But before we kind of get ahead to that, we, we really want to focus on today as we're wrapping up this series on resolutions, because today we're talking about relationship resolutions. Uh, Jim, Pastor Jim did a great job a couple weeks ago of, of helping us think through some areas in our lives where we need to get some physical goals in mind uh, in areas of our health. Last week, Dan talked about our spiritual health and how can we get some goals going there and where can we look for areas to improve and grow. And, and today's message, we're focusing on relationships because they are so critical. And, and don't overlook this message because this might be the message that literally keeps your family together. This might be the talk that maybe uh, you take personally to that toxic work environment that you go to every day, and maybe it transforms that. And so this is really critical stuff. Relationships are so, so important, but they are also so, so difficult, so hard, so much work to keep them going well and growing and healthy and strong. Uh, in fact, sociologists who have studied people uh, studied uh, the topic of regret. And of all the things that people regret in their lives, you know, missed opportunities, missed career opportunities, you know, maybe financial uh, unwise decisions, of all the things that people regret, the top two things that people regret more than anything else are romantic breakups and family fights. Because relationships are so, are so core to who we are as human beings. And, and so our relationships really affect us. And that sh- so that doesn't surprise us. Whether it's at home or at work or at church, relationships take hard work, especially those that are closest to us. And so today we're not, we're, we're going to be talking not just about husband-wife relationships, although I'm sure some of you will definitely see things through that lens, but, but we're also talking about other relationships like friendships and, 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 and parent-child relationships and, and co-worker relationships and neighbor relationships. So if you have a relationship somewhere in your life that's in crisis, this is for you. If you are a person who doesn't have any relationships in crisis, but maybe you have relationships that you would still like to work on and improve on, then this is for you as well. This is for you as well. Because starting a friendship is a lot easier than maintaining a healthy, growing friendship. Falling in love is a lot easier than staying in love. Especially, especially in, in our country, we have over 1,500, 1,500, count them, matchmaking organizations, okay? It's never been easier to fall in love, but it's never been harder to stay in love either. It, it, there are so many things that are kind of fighting at our relationships and tearing them apart. Everybody at work seems great on the very first day. It's once you get to know them that you're not so sure. And so that's why we're talking about this today. We all want healthy, long-lasting, growing relationships. Maybe here this morning you're even asking this question. Is it even possible to have love for a lifetime? Is it even possible to have healthy, growing friendships and family relationships? And the answer to those questions is yes, it is possible. It's hard work, 
but it is very much possible to have fulfilling, healthy, long-lasting relationships. This might be the year of change for you. Thankfully, God gives us his word, the Bible. And it doesn't teach us how to fall in love or how to start relationships. We can do that on our own easily most of the time. But it does teach us how to stay in love. And it teaches us how to stay in healthy, long-lasting relationships. So turn your Bibles to the New Testament, to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 is in the New Testament. It's a book that Paul wrote. Uh, Paul wrote it to a church that he had actually helped, that he had started in the city of Philippi uh, through one of his missionary journeys. And uh, it's a, it was a very large city, had a huge, large population. Think, uh, think of some of our major cities. And uh, it was a very diverse group of people that lived there. A uh, very diverse group of people from all over the world, different religions from all over the world. That was sort of the cultural backdrop for Paul writing this letter. And so you can kind of understand why he might address relationship issues when there's lots of people from lots of different places. Would you stand up and read this with me? Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Our ushers are here passing out Bibles if you need one to follow along. But let's read these first five verses um, of Philippians chapter 2 together. Here we go. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks for reading along. There's a lot there, so let's try to unpack it here so it makes sense for us. And and let me start by asking you to consider a few questions in your mind, okay? Where do you think most broken relationships break down? In your mind, kind of make a mental list, okay? Where do most broken relationships break down? Or in your healthy and good relationships, friendships, where, what are the areas that typically need strengthening? What are those? If you were to make a list, what would come here on your list? Maybe you would think of things like communication is often a breakdown in a lot of relationships when there's, when there's brokenness there. Or financial stress is often the cause of, of broken or hurting, stressful, tension-filled relationships. Maybe unforgiveness would come between um, two people. Maybe a prideful attitude on one or both person's parts come between people. And communication, that's critical. Financial stress, that those things are critical. And, and we address those. Pastor Jim addresses those. We address those here in our church because those are critical. Um, um, but we're not going to talk about those today. Those are external skills that we can work on, that we can help figure out, help people figure out to be, how to be wise with their money, how to communicate better. But Paul doesn't address those here because first, before we can ever talk about any kind of external issues uh, or skills that we need to grow in our lives, we need to understand that real change in broken or hurting relationships starts on the inside of you. That's where real change actually starts. 
Once you have a heart that says, I'm willing to work on things, I'm open to changing how I think about something or how I feel about something, then we can come alongside and give you some skills and give you some help, some practical helps to improve those areas. But until you are willing to change, until you are willing to look at you, all that outside stuff isn't going to do you any good at all. And just to be clear here where we're starting today, when I say real change and broken and hurting relationship starts on the inside of you, I'm actually literally talking about you. Not, not the you that's sitting next to you. I'm talking to you, okay? Not the you that you wish was here should be listening to this message. That's not who I'm talking about either. I, I'm talking to you. And so I'm asking that you would look at, uh, listen to today, that you would, that you would have an open mind to yourself. That's who we're addressing, you. Paul addresses some weeds that need to be pulled out of our hearts and minds. Weeds are our lies that maybe we've allowed to be stuck there for a long time and they kind of grow up and they, uh, infiltrate our relationships. And if you're my, if you're, if you'd be my neighbor, you would know how much I hate weeds. I, I, in fact, when I come home every day from, from the office, from work, I usually will park in the garage and I'll walk outside and I will pull a couple of weeds before I go into the house. I, I don't like to let them all build up so that I have to do it, you know, for days and hours on end. So I kind of pull a couple every single day to sort of stay on top of it. And I've also found that it intimidates the weeds and so they sort of don't want to grow up. Like when they see me coming, they know that I mean business. And I didn't know anything about taking care of a lawn before I moved to Goshen. When I, when I lived in Philadelphia, I literally had a 10 foot by 10 foot concrete patio. That was our backyard. Okay. Our houses were right up against two other houses. Right behind our house was another house. We all just ha- each had about 10 feet of space. We had a little slide for Ellie, a little Tykes kind of play school slide, and we had a grill. And that was all we needed to be happy was a grill. And that little slide too. And, and so we were, that was it. So I had to buy a lawnmower when I moved here. I had to figure out how to take care, you know, of grass and, and shrubs and bushes and weeds and all that kind of stuff. And, and maybe you're like me, you kind of just would take your mower and you kind of mow over top of the weeds. But here's the thing, they grow right back, don't they? They come back and they come back even thicker and fuller than ever. You gotta, you gotta get in there and you gotta actually pull out the weed right by the roots to really get rid of it, to not get it to come back. And maybe in your broken relationships in the past, you have tried to sort of fix some of those outside external behaviors. And really what you've sort of done is kind of taken the top off those weeds. But then they kind of fester, they come right back up months later or years later. Or watch this, even in other relationships. Maybe it's a different person, but you're having the same struggle or issue with them because all you've done is address the external behavior. All you've done is kind of taken off the top of that weed without really getting in there to the root. And that's what I'm trying to help you understand today, that maybe you might be part of the problem. Maybe these weeds have gone and grown unfiltered and unchecked inside of you. And today we want to be honest. I want you to be honest with yourself. If this year is going to be any different than any other year, listen, you got to be honest. And so today as we look at the scriptures, which which James calls a mirror, I want you to look at this mirror and look at yourself and and be honest to see whether or not there are some of these weeds that are growing inside of you. These weeds, you know, that we kind of believe are are so... so, uh, um, 
complex and might be different for all of us. But things that I sometimes sort of hear are things like, man, we're just so different. You know, he just looks at things so differently than I do. Or she is just so different or at work. Man, they don't even come from the same planet as I do. They are so different than me. Or they brought up... And listen, Paul's going to say, that's not true. That's, that's not a deal breaker. You can overcome differences in a relationship. Or, or, or maybe, you know, this one weave that you sort of believe is that only one of us can be right. Only one of us can be right. And then sort of in parentheses behind that, when we say that, we normally say, and I'm that one. But you know what? That's not true either. There actually can be situations where you have a different perspective than they do, but they're not wrong. And you're not wrong. Maybe it's just different. And so we sort of got to pull that weed out and say that only one of us can be right. And, and here's another one. We might say, well, he's just wrong. She's just plain wrong. And then again, the parentheses, we finish that sentence by saying, and I'm not. Um, that's how we view things. Or, or maybe one of those weeds that needs pulled out is, well, I, I believe from my point of view, I can see everything. I can see, I have perfect perspective on this matter. I, I can see what's going on here, and, and you know what? Maybe that's just not true. Or maybe because of past hurts in your life, maybe because of past relationships that you've been a part of, maybe your own family, maybe this weed is growing up inside you that says, I need to look out for me. I need to make sure I protect me. And so these are some of the things and then all the rest of them that we want to try to pull out today that Paul wants to expose. And so if we call those things the causes of broken relationships, those weeds, then today I want us to talk about five cures for broken relationships. Five cures for broken relationships in 2016. I hope you're ready. Here we go. Philippians 2.1 says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, do you have any comfort from his love? any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Paul starts off this passage here on relationships, and he's talking to a whole church there, but he starts off by not even addressing a relationship issue. He starts off by addressing our security in Christ. He says, here's the thing that we remind you of. You've been in, have you ever been encouraged by being united with Christ? Do you have any comfort from his love? Do you have any common sharing in the spirit that he's given you? Do you have any tenderness and compassion from him? He's reminding us of our security with him. He's not even talking about how to solve conflict. Or is he? Because here, here's what I want to show you. I think here's what Paul's saying. Here's cure number one for repairing those broken relationships in your life. Security with Christ means you don't need to control people. It's so critical that you and I see ourselves the way that Christ does. That we see ourselves through his eyes. Because when you are secure in Christ, you can put yourself out there easier and you are more trusting of others. You won't need to be so concerned that you get your way. Because you know that God is in control of you. And God's plan is going to be best for you. And you can trust him. You, and that lets you trust other people. But when you don't recognize that God is in control of you, you become very insecure, which leads you to breaking your relationships, trying to control it. Let me say it this way. The more out of control you feel, the more controlling you become in your relationships. The more out of control that you feel, the more, uh, the more controlling you become in your relationships. I start bossing everyone around. I start making demands. 
I start protecting myself. I start defending and demanding and demeaning and dominating. The more insecure that I am, the greater need I have for things to be my way. Have you ever seen that in yourself? Have you ever seen that in you where that kind of comes out of you when you feel like things are kind of out of control in this relationship? You feel like this person is starting to take control? You got to kind of grab on and just your grip gets a little tighter. You're going to make sure that you're the one in control. Instead, you need to recognize how secure you actually are in Christ. Remember what Christ thinks about you and it changes everything. If you're a secure person, you don't need to have your way all the time. It doesn't bother you because you know God is in control. But if you're insecure, then you have to have your way all the time and you'll fight for your way and you'll push for your way and you'll control for your way. The more out of control you feel, the more controlling you become. But Paul says by asking them these questions, he shows them that their security is in Christ and not in relationships, not in what someone else says or thinks but security is in him. Have you been encouraged by being united with Christ? Have you been comforted by his love? Do you have any common sharing in the spirit? And you would say, yeah, I do. Yeah. And Paul says, great, that's a foundation then for you to be able to treat others the way that I want you to. Because when you're secure with me, you don't need to control people. Paul's going to come back to this and so will we, but, but for now we're going to move on to verse 2. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. There's some really key words there in that verse. If you don't mind, I'd like you to underline your Bible. If if you don't want to do that, that's fine too. But here's what I want you to look at. Like-minded. Can you circle that word like or underline it. And then how about in the next phrase, the word same, having the same love. Underline or circle that word. And then the next phrase, circle the word one, being one in spirit. And then again, of one mind. Something that Paul is trying to show them over and over again in your broken relationships, you got to focus on all that you have in common. Focus on where you are united. And that's cure number two, focus on all you have in common. Philippi, remember, was a cosmopolitan city, a major city. Think Los Angeles, think New York City. It was just a huge major city in its day, full of diverse people from all over the world, different cultures. Even within the church, it was especially that way. If we had time, I want you to write down Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, 11 to 40. It's a whole long chapter, so there's not time to read the whole thing. But that is where Paul... It tells the story of Paul actually going to the city of Philippi in Acts 16. And if we were to read that, if you were to go home and read that today, you'll see the different group of people that make up the church there. The first person that Paul meets in Acts 16 is a a lady named Lydia. And she was a a convert uh, to Judaism. She was from Asia, Acts 16 says. And she sold purple cloth. And that was like a luxurious type thing, right? She sold like designer fashion clothes. That's what she did. And and so she was very wealthy from Asia and a a convert to Judaism. Then the next person that we meet, that Paul meets, is a slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit. And Silas and Paul remove that evil spirit. And and so she's she's from Greece and she's a slave. She's certainly not buying purple clothes and, and expensive fashionable things. 
And so that's sort of the gap you see there. And then the next people that we meet, Paul gets put into prison. And, and then there's this earthquake. And the, the jailer, the actual person who's the jailer there in Philippi, who's Roman, comes to know Jesus. And so he, he's part of that working middle class. He works for the government, normal kind of regular guy from Rome. And so even within the, that chapter, you can sort of see the diversity of the people that are going to be there in that church. It's pretty, pretty amazing uh, how diverse that church is. And when Paul is writing these verses to them here in Philippians chapter 2, he knows that and he doesn't think that's too much to overcome. Because of all that they have in common, he says you're not just too different from each other. You need to focus on all that you have in common. He says you are like-minded. Literally, you have the same mind in you because later we're going to read it's Christ's mind. You have the same mind in you. And so when you're tempted to think, man, we're just too different, this is too much, we're never ever going to come this, listen, that's not true. You got to focus on what you have in common. I love meeting believers from other places at random, random times or events. You know, you kind of just start talking to a person and all of a sudden you sort of pick up something that this person is like you and then you just feel this connection. You find out later, well, they're a Christian, they're a believer. I, that's what happened to our men. You heard them sharing about it as they got to back from Iraq. You know, they, they met men on the other side of the world. But because of the common spirit that we have in Jesus Christ, there's this instant connection, this instant unity that you have with them, Right? We can focus on what we have in common. Sometimes, here's what happens. When we have a relationship that is strained, because of the tension that we're feeling in that relationship, and because we're in such a conflict, we begin to see everything about that person through that very narrow lens of that conflict, through that very narrow lens of that tension. And we think everything about them now. We see everything about them through that lens of conflict. Instead of remembering and reminding ourselves of maybe all the reasons we fell in love with them in the first place or or all the reasons they became our friend in the first place or why we started to work for that company in the first place. All we see because of the tension there is this huge gap that's between us. Instead of looking at all of the things that we have in common. And that's what Paul is saying. It's why he focuses on these words, like-minded, one, one. Over and over, he wants them to focus on the unity And so to strengthen our relationships, to repair our broken relationships, we need to take a step back and gain perspective and remind ourselves of all the things that we have in common, all the ways we are working towards the same goal, all the ways that we do do uh, value the same things instead of forgetting all the good that's in that person or all the good that's come from that relationship. Let's look at a third cure as well. Philippians 2, and we're going to look at verse 3. It says, do nothing. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Paul addresses selfishness in this verse. Here's the third cure for repairing broken relationships. Treat others as more valuable than you. Ambition is good. Ambition is a drive inside of us that God placed there to want to do better, to be the best that we can, to push ourselves. That's good. But selfish ambition is different. A person who is selfishly ambitious is someone who does stuff in a relationship, and it can even be good stuff. He does good things or she does good things at work or good things in a relationship or good things in a friendship, but they do those things for ulterior motives. 
A person who is selfishly ambitious is someone who is doing something nice for you, but sort of on the inside, you feel like they want something as well. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's the kind of person who Paul is is describing, who, who is selfishly ambitious. Another translation calls this empty glory. This person's good desires are empty. They are only doing it to get noticed or to get approval from others, but they have no genuine interest in really helping other people. That doesn't get you anywhere, by the way. God doesn't bless that kind of service. And in fact, everything that you and I do to promote ourselves turns into nothing. Everything that you and I do to promote ourselves turns into nothing. That means mission trips that we go on or or serving that we do at church maybe even for years or or false humility that we bring up in conversations. It's where I kind of say something bad about myself so that you say something better about me. All those things are for nothing. Romancing our spouse if it's for selfish purposes, helping others, if it's for selfish purposes, those things that are done for pure personal gain amount to zero. That's what empty glory means. But the opposite is also true. Everything that you and I do to bless others, to build another person up, everything that we do to pour ourselves into someone else, to really, truly help someone, those are the things that will last. Those are the things that will create a legacy that lives beyond ourselves. That's why we genuinely need to check our motives to make sure we're really desiring to help people and really desiring to show God's love from a sincere place. How do you change yourself? How do you notice, how do you not do things out of selfish ambition? Well, Paul answers that there in that verse. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And here's the key. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves. And that's where I say, treat others as more valuable than you. Value others above yourselves. That means your spouse is more valuable than you are. That means you treat your your kids as more valuable than you. And they aren't more important in value, but you treat them that way. That's what the scripture says. Treat them that way. Not that they are more valuable. See, value is all in the eyes of the beholder. If If I am trying to sell my home and I think it's worth X amount of dollars, that's not really the value, is it? It's, it's only what another person is willing to buy my house for. That is what determines the true value of my home. And so, I, and so the person who is purchasing, the person who's selling is on the outside, they're the ones who determine the value of that home. You determine the value of someone else in your mind, in your eyes. You determine that they are more valuable than you are in your mind or in your eyes. We are not the most important people in our families We are not the most important people at our jobs. We are not the most important people in our neighborhoods or even in our extended families. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been somewhere where you weren't the most important at that event? Raise your hand. Have you ever been somewhere where you were not the focus of that particular event? Okay. Some of you guys didn't raise your hands. That's concerning. Um, Because I just said you're not the most important person at every event you go to. Let me give you an example in case you were struggling. Like, you, no, I think I am the most important person. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me convince you. Let me convince you. Have you ever been to a wedding where you weren't the bride? <laughs> Do you ever notice that when you walk in the back of the church, everybody doesn't stand and turn to face you? 
Did you ever notice that they don't change the music to your intro song? You know, when you walk into work, they don't start playing your music like, here I come. You know, you start waving, I'm here. They don't do that. You know why? It's because you're not the most important person there. It's because it's not about you. It's not about you at that event. It's not about you when you're there. And Paul's saying you got to treat other people like they're the most important person at that event. That event might be breakfast at your house. That event might be dinner at your house, but you treat the other people as if they're the most important people there. If you ever have your boss over for dinner, you don't talk about yourself the whole time. You don't, you don't treat them as if you're more important than they are. You, you don't correct everything they say that maybe is a little wrong or off from the day. You don't do that. And listen, we don't treat those that are most important to us that way either. We, we don't need to point out every wrong thing our spouse says. We don't have to correct them on everything. We don't have to correct our kids on everything that they do. We don't have to correct our friends and always be the one that points out when they said something wrong. We don't treat people that are more valuable than us that way. We treat others as if they are more valuable than us. Look at the person that's next to you, and I want you to say to them, you're more important than I am. Look at the person, look at them and say this, say, and maybe you just say it to the other person, there's another person on the other side of you, but say, you're more significant than me. And do you know what? Do you know what all of you just did? You told the truth. No, exact opposite. You just told the truth. You just told the truth because they are more important than you. They are more valuable and significant than you are. If you're living your life as if you are the most significant person, your relationships, I'm sure, are not good. Instead, we need to get our eyes off of ourselves And the way that we do that is to treat others as if they are more significant than we are. That will change you. When you begin to treat treat people that way, you'll actually see your heart begin to change. And you'll begin to view yourself in a more humble way. In a more humble way. Let's take a look at the fourth thing that Paul says in Philippians. In the end of verse 3, he says, Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, In verse 4, then it says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And that's the key, that's a key right there. The fourth cure to fixing those broken relationships in 2016 is to adjust your lens to see the other person's view. Adjust your lens to see the other person's view. He says, don't look out for your own interests, but each of you look out for the interests of the others. Interests are interesting. Do you know that? By definition, that's what they are. Interests are interesting. And here's what I find about myself, and maybe it's true of you as well. The things that I find interesting, I usually take an interest in them. And the things that I find disinteresting, I typically don't take an interest in those things. Is that true of you, Dave? That's true of me, right? The things that I think are interesting, I I like. The things that maybe those that I'm friends with, the the things that maybe my wife finds interesting, I may not find those things very interesting. And so I probably don't take an interest in those things. 
But being in a relationship, whether it's a friendship or whether it's being in co-workers, means that I need to be willing to get outside of my world and outside of what I think is interesting and be willing to enter into their world and what is interesting to them. And the reason that I do that is not because I'm interested in those things, but it's because I'm interested in that person. And so because I'm interested in that person, the things they're interested in become interesting to me. Let me give you an example. My, my grandparents were married for over 60 years before they passed away. And they moved to Florida after they retired. And every year then they would come and visit us and they'd spend a couple weeks with us at the holidays and, and, and maybe at Christmas, I'm sorry, in the summertime as well. And, and so I got to spend a lot of time with them and, and I noticed a lot of things about them. Uh, and they did a lot of things the same. Every morning they would have each have a half of grapefruit for breakfast. And, and, and every evening they would watch and we would watch it with them when they were at our house, Wheel of Fortune and then Jeopardy every night. Yeah. And, and, and then and we would play games like Boggle and Scrabble and Skippo and Phase 2, I think they taught us. And all these different games, they play, would play with us every single night. They enjoyed doing those things. That's what they did. And, and I don't know who took the first interest in those things. I don't know if my grandma liked Pat Sajak or if my grandpa liked Vanna White. I don't know. Because by the time I came along, they were both just doing those things. Something happened along the way where they began to cross over and they took interest in the same things. This past uh, week, Tara and I, we moved our furniture, kind of rearranged our last couple of weeks since the holidays, we rearranged our furniture and so we kind of created, we had this one empty wall now in our house and Tara loves um, Pinterest and she loves to decorate and she's, she's tremendous at that. And so we began to sort of plan what we were going to do. I got to tell you, before I married Tara 17 years ago, I never thought about those things. I never thought about how, you know, what kind of collage would look good to put some stuff together. But we found ourselves at Hobby Lobby last Friday night looking at stuff and I'm like, ooh, that would look kind of nice. And I'm thinking like, what are you saying, man? What are you saying? But you know what? I do it because I love my wife and because I want to take an interest in the things that she finds interesting. That's what we got to be willing to do to cross over and love that person for the sake of that relationship, enter into their world, empathize, look at things from their view, ask questions. Why do you see it that way? Because that's not how I see it. Man, that wasn't my first impression. Help me understand why you think this is so important. Why is this so critical to you? What is, and be willing to truly empathize and truly look at stuff from their perspective and take, take off your glasses for a moment and look at theirs and even look at you and say, wow, I never saw that about myself. I, I guess I can't see why you would think that or why what I said sounded that way. Or why I always do that looks that way. I guess I, I can see things better now. See, because you and I don't have a perfect perspective. Paul says, take on the interests of others. Take on the lens or the view of others. Enter their world. Don't make them come to yours. And here's how we're going to wrap up today, looking at verse 5. Paul comes back to something we already talked about earlier. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And literally he means you have the mind of Christ in you. So you can do these things. Because as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, how can I do this, right? I read this this week and man, I was convicted over and over and over again about the way that I treat people in my life. 
And I'm like, how can I do this? It's because the mind of Christ is in me. It's because Christ is in me. I can't do this. You can't do this. But when we surrender to Christ, we can. And here's what he's reminding us of. Because then he goes on in, in the next couple of verses, 6, 7, and 8, to show us how Jesus left heaven to, to come to earth. Do you know what he did? He, he, took, he, took the, he took things in from our perspective. He did exactly what we're talking about, right? He took things from our perspective. He considered us more valuable than himself. He, he did those things. He, he humbly treated, uh, he humbly uh, saw us as more important than himself. He was secure because of his relationship with his father so that he could put himself out and be vulnerable for our sakes. He did everything that we just talked about here in Philippians 2. That's what Christ did. That's how Christ treats you. And that's the fifth cure for your broken relationships is to remind yourself that Christ treats you this way. Christ treats you this way. We can't do this without him, but we can't forget this is how he treats us. And once we have that foundation, we are then able to treat people the way that we're supposed to. Here's what you need to remind yourself every single day. You need to pause and remember the way that God loves you. Because if you don't feel loved by God, you're not able to give love to anybody else. It's impossible to really be loving and not feel loved. So you have to remind yourself every single day what God thinks about you. Not what the world thinks about you, and not what you even think about yourself. But you need to tell yourself, remind yourself of what God says about you. And let me give you just four of the things that God thinks about you. You can even write these down. Four things that God thinks about you. One, I'm completely accepted. And that's important because the deepest wounds in my life, and I imagine the deepest wounds in your life, are caused by rejection. So we spend so much of our lives trying to earn the acceptance of others and to avoid rejection from our parents and from our peers and from those that we respect and those that we don't, don't even know from strangers. We want respect. We want to be accepted. We're so scared of being rejected. But here's the good news. You don't need everybody's approval to be happy. The bad news is you would never get it anyway. The good news is they're always worried about their approval rating too. And so the point here is you need to realize this issue of acceptance has already been settled by God. I am completely accepted. Remind yourself of that every single day. Number two, I'm unconditionally loved. I'm completely accepted I'm unconditionally loved. That's what God thinks about you. He loves you unconditionally. In other words, it's consistent. God is not unpredictable. God doesn't say, hey, today I love you. Tomorrow, you know, I'm not so sure. If I have a bad hair day, I can't promise how I'm going to feel about you. That's not what God says. That's how we treat each other. We're conditional upon our love, but God's not it's consistent and it's unconditional. God doesn't say, oh, I love you if. He doesn't put conditions. He doesn't say, well, I love you because of what you... No, he doesn't love us because of stuff. He just says, I love you, period. 
I love you. And listen, there is no, nothing in your life in the future that will ever cause you to, cause God to love you any more than he already does this second. There's nothing you'll ever do to, to cause him to love you more. And there's nothing that you'll ever do to cause God to love you any less than he loves you this second. His love is unconditional. He just says, I love you. You can't make God stop loving you. In fact, he says, I love you in spite of you. You never need to ask yourself this question. Will God love me today? Because it's settled. I am completely accepted. I am unconditionally loved. Third, I am totally forgiven. We shouldn't be carrying on to shame from our pasts because we are totally forgiven. Do you realize that before God even made you, he already knew the worst things you would ever do and he still chose to love you. Isn't that amazing? I mean, just try to, you know, think about that. God knew you at your worst. Even, even the people that are probably sitting next to you don't know the worst, but you do. And you know who else knows the worst is God. And he still chose to love you and chose to love me at my worst. And you know that there's nothing that, that you'll be able to ever do in the future, even that you don't know about, God already knows about it, and he still loves you anyway. Because of what he did on the cross, because he allowed himself to become your sacrifice, you can say, I am totally forgiven. I'm totally accepted. I'm completely accepted. I'm unconditionally loved. I'm totally forgiven. And here's the fourth one. I'm considered extremely valuable. Doesn't that sound weird to say? But it's true. I'm considered extremely valuable. Let me ask you a very personal question. How much do you think you're worth? That's, that's a hard question to answer, right? I'm not talking about your net worth. I'm talking about your self-worth. I'm not talking about all your valuables, adding them up. I'm talking about your personal value. How much do you think as a person you are worth? Well, let me ask you another question to help you answer that one. Do you remember what I said earlier about where value comes from? Value is determined by what someone is willing to pay for it. That's what determines value. So let me ask you, who do you belong to? Who owns you? God does. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. It says, you have been bought with a price and paid for by Christ's death. If value depends on what somebody is willing to pay for it, and Jesus Christ paid for you with his life, that's how valuable you are. You are so valuable that Jesus died for you. He couldn't pay a higher price. That's how extremely valuable you are. Christ died for you. He paid with his life. So how do I remember the way that God loves me? Every morning I remind myself, I'm completely accepted. 
I'm unconditionally loved. I'm totally forgiven. I'm considered extremely valuable. And once you have those, that foundation for you, you are then able to pull out some of those other weeds, some of those other lies that sort of you hold on to that are hangups that are breaking your relationships. So as we wrap up today, ask yourself this question. What does this message, this passage mean for me? Not what does this, again, let me remind you who I mean. I, I don't mean, what does this mean for that person sitting next to you? Remember, I don't mean, what does this mean for that person who's not here that you think should be here to hear this? What does this mean to, what, I, I, what is this going to mean for my kids and how they should change? No, what does this mean for you? Just to be clear, I mean you. What does this mean for you? What personal sacrifices might you need to make for the sake of a relationship? What professional sacrifices might you need to make for the sake of a relationship? Are you treating yourself as more valuable than others? Are you overlooking all the good in that person? Are you willing to look at things from their perspective and not just yours? What would happen if we would start to treat each other that way in our families? What would happen if we would try to start to treat each other that way at work and What would happen if we would start to treat each other that way, even here in our church family? Just imagine. Just imagine. But remember that real change in broken or hurting relationships starts on the inside of you. That's where it'll start. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we say thank you for your word. It is a mirror that shows us our lives And Holy Spirit, God, I I just come to you and I ask that you would give give comfort, Lord, where we need comfort, Lord, where we need it. We need you to come alongside and remind us of the truths of the way you feel about us. And Lord, I pray that you would also, Holy Spirit, come alongside and that you would counsel and convict. And God, we pray for just a wave of humility to come over our church a wave of humility, Lord, to come over our relationships, our families, our workplaces, God, our community. I pray, Lord, that from here, from each individual heart of each person that's listening right now, Lord God, we would see something happen as we begin to treat other people as more valuable than ourselves, as we would begin to see things from your perspective and not just ours. Holy Spirit, I pray that we, this would be the year, 2016, the year of change. In your name I pray, amen. As we wrap up today, inside your bulletin, I'd love for you to pull out this yellow sheet that you received when you got in here. If you didn't grab one, grab one at one of the doors on the way out today. We put this together for you. This is a resolution sheet. All right, we talked about a couple of different areas where we're desiring God to see change, uh, do, do change in our lives. And so here's four different areas that we've covered that we want you to, to make some goals for this year. Because wouldn't it be sad if next year you are at the same place you are today? I mean, wouldn't that just be the, the biggest bummer, right? 
And, and so you would say, yeah, I got to change that. But you never do. Listen, write it down. Remember Dan told us last week that we only remember 10% of what we read. I thought this was so interesting. We only remember 20% of what we hear. We only remember 30% of what we see. But we remember 50% of what we see and hear. And we remember 70% of what we say and write. And so if you're willing to write down some actual goals, say them out loud, you'll remember 70% of those things. That's where change starts to happen. It's going to take some effort on your part, some intentionality. This is the year of change for you. Don't miss next Sunday. Don't miss us kicking off this new theme. It's going to be awesome. I hope you guys have a great week. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.